We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, Morning Grind listeners? You're about to listen to an interview with Jordan Cooper. You guys know him better as Blender. Fascinating stories uh, from his life. I was not aware of most of this. He's going to be talking about touring in a band, uh, being a stand-up comedian at 17, running a poker room in New York City. So you're going to want to stay tuned. This is a good one, I promise you. Uh, That said, we partnered with DraftKings. The Qualifier Fantasy Golf Millionaire Contest starts Thursday, June 11th. Users can compete for the $1 million top prize. The winner will also be awarded with a ticket for free entry into the Fantasy Tournament of Champions final. Now, the Fantasy Tournament Champions uh, final will be held during the big game in Tampa, where users will compete for another $1 million top prize. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Welcome back to the Morning Grind, uh, Roto Grinders. I'm Dean, once again, filling in for Stevie. Stevie is still on duty uh, knocking out all that NASCAR content. If you guys want the NASCAR content, you know where to head it up. Uh, and Stevie will be back soon enough. I don't know when, but as for right now, y'all are stuck with me. Sorry, apologies. Uh, not a lot of sports, of course, going down. So we're continuing our series of uh, daily fantasy personalities, uh, just kind of giving the origin stories. I should say, uh, if you guys want MMA content, we talked about MMA yesterday with Sun Tzu. Uh, next week, we'll be talking about some golf. So there is some... Uh, DFS relevant sports sprinkling in. We're going to have Noto on next week to talk about. There's a million maker for DK. Uh, and if some of the other personalities that we, uh, you guys, it's evergreen content. You guys can go ahead and check it out. So we've talked to a head chopper and Andy Means and Emac and Kevin Roth and Fast Eddie Fear was on yesterday. Whole slew of people. You can check that out on the, uh, not just the podcast feed. You can check it out on the YouTube as well. Uh, with that, we're going to bring in a Rotogrunner's personality. Sure. It's, uh, it's Jordan Cooper. You guys know him better as Blender. Blender, what's going on, dude? Fine. I, I'm, I, I finally get on one of these shows. I've been listening all the time. It's like, it's like okay, I guess I'm on the bottom of the barrel. And, and I like the fact that a soccer isn't considered a DFS-relevant sport, even though it's happening. <laughs> couple things. First of all, you're not the first person to bring to my attention. Like, oh, now you're going to give me a call? Now you're going to give me a call? Uh, and, and I was like, well, first of all, uh, I made a list and I didn't want to, I, I wanted to get, I didn't want to just plow right through the Roto Grinders guys. I want I worked other people in a Ricky Sanders from Delhi Roto, Rusty Nuts from Elite, uh, you know, Eddie's currently a free agent. You know, I, did, I didn't want to just make it only RG guys. Right. And I also didn't want to like say like, these are my favorites. I'm going to work my way down. So I just sort of like try to keep it somewhat random. So, <laughs> so nobody does come at me with that question, but that's a fair it's a fair point. All I can say is that I'm happy I came on before Brick. 
Britt turned me down. And I was like, all right, screw it. I'll call Blender. <laughs> oh, so I was the second. <laughs> I have a whole list. There's a bunch of people on my list. I don't, I don't know how long I'm going to be doing this for. So, I mean, I may be hitting somebody up like a month and a half from now. And they're going to be like, oh, now finally? Really? So imagine how they feel. Uh, and the second thing, now I'm, I thank you for listening. Do you have a, a favorite? I'm not going to quiz you, but is, has there been one you particularly enjoyed as far as the interviews? I mean, I listen before I go to sleep. So a lot of the time, a lot of times, half the podcast, I fell asleep before finishing the end. Fair I listened to Eddie's the other day. That was good. I mean, I listen to them all, but I mean, I listen to podcasts throughout the day, like just like it's talk radio. So it's on and sometimes I don't remember like, oh, I listened to an hour and a half of something. I don't remember a single thing that anyone said. What other podcasts do you listen to? Uh, politics podcasts and wrestling podcasts. I've been going through the back catalog of uh, something to wrestle with with Bruce Pritchard. That's uh, Bruce Pritchard was Brother Love, correct? Right, and he was also on the creative team for WWE. I I've watched in this in this in this virus outbreak, whatever. I think I've watched two hundred hours of wrestling content on the WWE Network. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw I signed up to nine ninety nine. I haven't watched wrestling. Uh, since like 2002, 2003. Okay. Why I know, I know Andy that? was on and he yeah. was like, well, you could just start with Nitro in 1993 and just watch the regular show. It's like, I remember doing that. I'm not going to just, some. you remember a lot of good stuff, but there's also a lot of bad stuff. So I just were watching like the documentaries on WWE. And after, it's like nine, nine, it was a free trial. So I'm like, they have a 20 hour documentary series on the Monday Night War. I'm like, wow. okay, let's just plow through this. And then they have like eight hours on like the ruthless aggression era. And then I'm just going through and then it's like every, the Dudley boys documentary and I'm just going through all of it. And then I have the undertaker last ride series coming out stone cold with the broken skull sessions. Like it's all the stuff. Like I want to learn and of all the content, like in the era that I watched wrestling, but now they're talking with like not kayfabe, just like it's, like everything behind the scenes, how these things got set up and everything. Cause I mean, everyone knew it was predetermined. I mean, it's like, I, I wasn't watching going, wow, this is real. I mean, I, 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 so I got like the torch and, and, uh, and Bill after, I mean, I, I was heavily into wrestling. I got Meltzer's the guy. Isn't Dave Meltzer like the authority on, uh, yeah. on that? That's the, that's the name I know is like the, right. the, the main He's authority. Old school. For- you get all the magazines and everything like that and see who's jumping here, who's going there. And, and I, I went to a lot of, uh, uh, I mean, in New York City, I went to I went to numerous WWE and WCW events, but I also uh, uh, took the bus. They, there was like like they called them the Chinatown buses or whatever down to Philadelphia and see ECW and then Ring of Honor. So like I was heavily in the, in my teens and my early twenties in the in the in the the wrestling wrestling scene, like seeing Daniel Bryan when he was Brian Danielson in Ring of Honor, like before he was in WWE. And I never really liked like the, the cartoonish crap. The, the, the Duke the Dumpster Drozzy didn't do it for you or Dwight the Now the goon? No, 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 probably not. <laughs> Papa Shango? Like, come on, these aren't, these aren't real people. The goon was a, uh, get this, a hockey player that also like uh, moonlighted as a wrestler. Right, the repo gimmick, right? man. I mean, come on. He repossesses your cars right. and he also wrestles. No, he was in that he was in demolition. Like when he was in demolition, that was a, that was actually a good tag team. And then they hey, started to You want a fun fact? Uh, uh, you know, Chris Jericho, his father, uh, was a, ho- a hockey player, Irvine, Ted, Ted Irvine, something Irvine. Yeah, something like that. They almost gave him the goon uh the goon gimmick for that reason. 
He almost got stuck with that. Ninety-nine when he came over. Really? I read this someplace. Yeah, I don't okay. know what year. Yeah, he, he was almost a goon. No, no, maybe before that. I mean, maybe like in the early nineties. I don't know, but it, it's it's on the Google machine or it's on Bing or something like that. He was almost stuck with the goon gimmick, which I don't know when. Oh, the goon but was when he came in, and he interrupted the Rock. That was I remember. Watching no, no, no. Before, before that, basement. this is before. I think he. Oh, this, this is before, like before, before WCW and all I think that so. Kind of yeah, thing. yeah. I I, th- I think that's the case. I don't. I, mean, I read this somewhere. Don't hold me to it. But like his father was a. Uh, a uh, hockey player for the Rangers, I believe. Like, he jumped around, but I guess the most popular team he was on. Um, I, I always like, I'm, I'm always mostly interested in uh, the backstage stuff. Uh, we were talking about this, you know, pre-show or pre-pre-show, I, guess, I suppose. We were texting about it. Uh, Dark Side of the Ring, like the documentary is just kind of like, the, the wrestling is whatever, but I always think it's interesting, like the how things kind of play out and all like the, the backstabbing uh, and just the storylines and how things could have gone certain ways and the writing and all that. That, that, that's sort of my thing. And I, you were talking about this, uh, the Dark Side of the Ring series. We're both into this. You're a fan, I imagine, yes? Yeah, no, no. I, I haven't watched the, the the last two, the Road Warriors one and the Owen Hart one yet, but like the Brawl for All and the and the the New Jack one. Like I like the, I, I mean, that's, I I always knew when I, and as a teenager, I watch it, I, I'm a creative person. I mean, like I was a stand-up comic and actor. I enjoyed I viewed it like watching a movie, but criticizing like how they wrote the movie, how they write yeah. the TV series. So it's like, like you look at some of these storylines and go, oh, wouldn't it be cool if they did this? Are they going to try to trick me this way? And when something surprises you and you're like, oh, that made logical sense. Like, I never liked the straightforward kind of like, they're going to create a feud for the sake of creating, oh, you interfered with my match and now I'm going to, I'm going to call you out for a month and then wrestle you in the pay-per-view. Like, I like the long-term type of storylines and then how they weave the other characters in. So I like the behind the scenes of like, how did they creatively come up with that? And sometimes you see that sometimes it was just luck. Like just like something what happens organically. You just kind of fall into on the it. Fly. Yeah. What, what's your, what's your favorite long-time storyline? Do you have one? I mean, I, I mean the, the, not the long-term storyline of all wrestling is Austin versus the man. I mean, that's like, like that's the greatest feud in the history of wrestling. But I mean, I remember I was pissed off. They Kurt Angle had a feud with Triple H. Okay. For a long time when it was supposed to be like they were teasing that maybe Stephanie was cheating on him with like they, there was some type of romance, some type of weird connection between Stephanie Kurt was Angle. married to Triple H at the time. Right. Or they was kayfabe married until he got actually married. Okay. Uh, and then I, I liked, I'm like, they could go multiple directions. And then like, uh, like after like four months, like Triple H just like squashed Kurt Angle in some pay-per-view and that was the end. And I'm like, that could have been like a whole long-term type of storyline. And then just, they just stopped it. But sometimes it's because of like, I think Kurt Angle had to leave because of a pill addiction or something like that. He might've got fired. Like that could have been the reason. I don't know if that's the reason why in that case, but they always have to think of stuff on the fly. Uh, You mentioned ECW and like, you know, people are like 20 years old, 25 years old in this podcast. And I remember ECW when you'd see it like really late on at night in syndication, something somewhere, or like people would have tapes of this kind of like crazy wrestling. We were talking about this with Rusty Nuts and not so long about, you know, the MMA stuff, like UFC stuff. You can find UFC on Fox Sports 1 or ESPN or on demand anywhere. But in the 90s, you couldn't really find you. It was hard to find just watching it. If you like MMA, people would trade tapes and ECW and just that sort of concept of uh, like hardcore was like their concept, right? Just like crazy. Like yeah, but it wasn't games. all hardcore. See, like I like ECW. I mean, I, I, I'm i from New York City. So like we got hardcore TV like late at night on some syndicated 
channel. Like you could, you, we could find their their weekly show, uh, and they and they would do shows at the Hammerstein Ballroom and the the Queen's Lodge. So like I went to ECW shows in the late nineties. What's that like? What's that atmosphere like? Oh, girl, it, it, there's no, there's no. I went to WWE shows, and yes, <laughs> there's a spectacle. You get all the pyro and everything like that. But ECW, I mean, you're sitting in the fourth row, and and people are flying by. I mean, like there's there's it's like going to a punk rock concert. I mean, I was in the punk scene also, but that's what it felt like. But it's like but, 500 people, and there's chairs being thrown sometimes. Is this it, yeah? Those? But it's a lot of audience participate. There's a lot of. Uh, creative chance you come up with that the like people coming up and then everyone started to come up with it it's, it's a lot of camaraderie like you could go to it you could go to a show and as long as you're a wrestling fan a hardcore when i say hardcore i mean like not into hardcore wrestling but just under like the fact that like you know someone that's coming over from njpw in japan and you're like oh i'm, I'm excited to see this guy because of you know something i heard or tape that i had like it's almost like you're you're dealing with kind of Dungeons and Dragonsy type of nerdy type people, but, but you know it's it. like right. But it's cool because everyone's into the same thing. But typically, the matches that I didn't like were the hardcore. I didn't like New Jack. I didn't like Sandman. I didn't like Tommy Dreamer as much. I liked the Rob Van Dam versus Jerry Lynn. I liked the the very technical like choreographed wrestling where it's like they're gonna have a 25 minute match that's gonna be just like no rest holds or anything like that. It's just side to side, hold into hold and slam into slam and all that type of stuff. So like I preferred like when Eddie Guerrero was in ECW, when uh, Benoit and Dean Malenko and Chris Jericho and all those, all those like kind of cruiserweight type of guys. Like I like that over like new Jack coming in with a garbage can and a bunch of like they used to have it that he was wild, man. I saw that as a vice episode, and I would not want to mess with New Jack. He he took it very seriously sometimes. Yeah, but he barely wrestled. But they used to have it outside of ECW Arena that they would have uh, that garbage can, or they would have a dumpster, and the fans could bring whatever they want. <laughs> like that, you could bring whatever you want. You couldn't br- you couldn't bring it in. They wouldn't let you like. If you had a rake, you, they wouldn't let you bring in a rake, but you could put the rake in the dumpster, and that's what New Jack would come in and dump into the ring. So you could they 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 had ones where you could put in it what feathers. I re, I saw one where like they used feathers. it, and and the other guy sold it like it was a you know like a big deal. But literally, <laughs> the audience could bring whatever they want the wrestlers to use as weapons, and and hopefully maybe someone uses it. So there would be signs, they'd be toasters and. Any any type of appliance, any type of mannequins, anything you wanted, but that's what ECW was. That's what drew me to that of like, oh, this isn't like you know, kind of homogenized wrestling that I see on TV, but it's still good wrestling. It's completely totally different than what the WWE was doing at the time, which I guess was like family friendly and Hulk Hogan trying to attract kids and things like that. It's a totally different angle. Did you ever bring like a mannequin or like a chainsaw? No, no, I didn't bring it. I, I'll watch the violence. I'll watch the wrestling and whatever. I'll watch balcony off the balcony, whatever. You know, the table should Spike Dudley with the table shots and everything. Like, I mean, I think I, I only went to like, I think three CW shows ever. And then I went yeah. to a bunch of Ring of Honor in like 2002, 2003 when they came out. And then since in New York City, I've gone to the Garden for Raw or Nassau Coliseum for Nitro or something like that. Because me and my friends would get tickets all the time. Is that where you grew up in New York City? Yeah. And you've been, you were there for how many years? About 27, 28 years. And now you're currently in Louisville. Is that correct? Yep. Living here, what now, 13 years? 
What do you miss most about uh, New York? Not much anymore. I'm old now. Like when I was in my 20s, I'm like, New York is the greatest place. And now when you're 41 years old, you're like, I just want people to get away from me. Like, I don't want to be near a lot of people. So, <laughs> so I don't want to have to let out and find a parking spot, take the subway for 45 minutes to get somewhere. I almost don't miss anything from New York anymore. What's it like growing up in New York? Like, I, I just, uh, it's a great place to visit, obviously. But I, you look around and I'm like, I don't know if I can live here. Like, I, I, maybe I can. Maybe it's amazing. Maybe That's it's I'm smaller doses. It. I, everything, every, anything you want to do is typically 24-7 within walking distance. So, like, the access, like, I, I just going down the block, I'm going to go down the block and get a, a, a bagel and cream cheese, you know. Uh, it's three in the morning. I'm going to order, I'm going to go to the, di- like, my... When you're like in your late teens, early 20s, it's like, you know, you hang out and it's two in the morning, you go to the diner, right? And you're just going to go to diner and, you know, get some pancakes or so. You could order anything at any time. I'd have, I'd have soup and pancakes at three in the morning because that's, well, why not? So that's what I wanted to eat. Oh, I muted. My apologies. <laughs> Thank you, Devin. <laughs> uh, we're going to cut that out in post for sure. Are you going to try uh, to send me a secret message there? Was that No, was no. That I was just, I muted myself. Uh, I, I goofed my bad. But uh, the, you, you mentioned the punk scene. What, what, what punk bands were you checking out there in the in New York City, I guess, in the 90s? Well, I, I was I was a promoter. I, I ran a, like a DIY venue. Like a lot, a lot of times in the punk scene, like you, you play, like I was in a band and I, I toured around the country and we knew small band, small label, whatever. Uh, like kids would you, you, like you just basically rent out a VFW hall, right? You're like it wasn't necessarily in clubs. We played shows that were in st- rented out storefronts or warehouses and things like that. So like I found the basement ballroom of a temple of a synagogue in Bensonhurst and it had a stage in it and it could hold like 750 people. So basically, I just asked, uh, and they were a reform synagogue, so a l- little bit more progressive. And uh, and my father happened to be friends with like two of the people that were on the board of the synagogue. Uh, and I just asked, like, can I rent? I mean, I would go to shows in New Jersey and Long Island in these type of legion halls and church, you know, ballroom type of places, you know, like the you know like the gym or something. Uh, so then, why can't I do it? So rent it out and. I ran shows for like four and a half years and got some, got some big bands or bands that ended up being big, but you know, when, before they were big. So like I did a lot from like 19 to 23. Who did you discover? I just ran a lot of shows in Brooklyn. Who did you discover? Who was first appeared in your venue before you, before you heard of them? Uh, Taking back Sunday. Oh, okay. Yeah. They're from, they're from, they're from, yeah. Cause most of them are going to be from the, the New York, New Jersey area. My Chemical Romance, uh, uh, I know the Explosion. I know they were more on the indie scene. Uh, I mean, but, but we had we had some. Uh, who else? Like Thursday. I mean, it, it's if it was a band from like the late '90s, early 2000s that started around there and was in the New York, New Jersey area, they prop they probably played my place. And if they became big, they be, they became big or whatever. I mean. Yeah, so punk is like a big term. It's a it's it can be defined many different ways. Uh, are you a punk snob in that do you reject bands like uh, Green Day or Blink One Eighty Two? That's who I was punk? into. That's the okay. I mean, well, I, you, I, you, you understand what I'm saying though, right? You, you know this. You've heard this before. Like that's not right. really a punk band, right? Well, I mean, I pop punk. Th- right. Well, most of the shows I did was pop punk. Even though my band, I, I was in like a hardcore band. Uh, 
But I mean, I the I got into punk through uh, Green Day, Offspring, Rancid, and then once you find those bands, then you find Bad Religion, No Effects, you know, Vandals, you know, the Warp Tour type of yeah. Because I mean, because that's I, I was fifteen. I mean that that's the era it, that would have ended up being you know Bad Brains, Dead Kennedys, Black Flag. If I happened to be ten years younger, makes sense. But right, but that's where I introduced myself, and then I got into more of the the, the hardcore bands uh, like, you know, Strife, Ignite, Earth Crisis, you know, led Sick of It All, that type of stuff. And then got into more of like the, the death metal, melodic death metal stuff with uh, like uh, In Flames, Kill Switch Engage, On Earth, Converge, Bane, you know, like the kind of like the more of the metalcore bands in the in the Northeast, that type of area. And that's what my band was more like. But I mean, uh the venue that I ran, it was all ages. So, I mean, it was, it, we rented out a synagogue. So like the, pri- the primary audience was what would be called from punk stops to be the, the mall kids, right? Yeah. Like the kid, the hot topic kids, the ones they've corn t-shirts like that. They, they, they know those Man, bands, but they don't, they may know some of the more independent bands, but not so much, but those, those are the ones, those are the kids that want to explore. Cause that's how I found the music. So you can't, well, I'm, I'm 21 years old promoting shows and the average age that's coming is like 15, 16. But when I was 15, 16, I was like, that's, I was like the green day and the offspring. So I want those kids to come and see good independent bands, local bands, support the local scene, get touring bands through smaller touring bands that, you know, needed a place to stay some gas money. And they were, they, you know, coming from all over the country and get to experience uh, an actual DIY punk show. And we typically drew anywhere from like maybe 150 to 300 on, we ran shows maybe two or three times a month on Saturdays. Uh, but those, those are the kids that are willing to plunk down eight bucks and come see a show. Anytime that we typically, we try to do more of like the, the hipster, like the bands, bands that I liked or whatever. Less it was very hard. Well, well no, a lot, a lot of those tended to be a little bit older and had no problem just going into Manhattan because Brooklyn's a different body. They go into Manhattan and watch and see them at the wetlands or see them at Irving Plaza. See, like they're not going to come and go into the basement of a synagogue. And like, it's, it's just hard to, it's very jaded. You get jaded at that point of, I'm only going to see the bands that I like and I don't care about supporting the scene. So I just wanted to stick to kind of 90% of the shows were just like pop punk type of emo punk type of type of shows, but that that's what the kids like. So why Is not? Is that brand it? new? Brand new popped in my head. I don't know why. I no, no. Yeah. Brand, I, brand new played. But yeah. If they're, they're, from Long Island, if, if they're a pop punk band from Long Island, New Jersey, Connecticut, right. They probably played, played my piece. How did you, how were you smart enough or sharp enough or ambitious enough to say, I'm going to be a music promoter at 20, 21 years old. I was 19. Cause what, cause who else is, who's going to tell me? No. I don't, I mean, I was a dope. That's, that's really what I, it I is. didn't think, like, I didn't know, like, I can figure this out. Like, you just I saw like, other kids. I, we, I, me and my friends, that when we started our band, I mean, we, we weren't even playing shows. We were just like, like, just, hey, they're local shows. Like, I would go to Coney Island High in Manhattan, which is closed. I mean, closed a lot. It was like 2001. But that was like a little 400-person venue, and I saw tons of shows there. And then you'd see, like, in Long Island, oh, so-and-so is playing at, uh, at, some you know the Farmingdale Legion Hall, and you go there, and like, oh, it's just, it's it's just the Legion Hall with, and who's running the show? It's it's yeah. kids from a band, and you go to New Jersey, and you go, it's a, the American Legion Hall in 
Union, New Jersey, and you go there and who's in charge? Some 20-year-old kid. So it's like, why can't I do this in Brooklyn? There's nothing here in Brooklyn like this. So let me just find a place, right? I was doing web development on like Wall Street. So I was making good money. So I'm like 350 bucks to rent a basement of a synagogue. And I was already involved with the scene. So I knew bands. So I'm like, you want to play? You want to play? You, you, you do graphic design. I was technology savvy. I built a website. And the website actually at that time had was the only punk venue to have audio on it because it was like 1999. So I was using like real audio server. So like you could even see clips of the band because I like paid for like audio streaming hosting because I had my own server. Like I, I, I'm a computer geek. So like when I had the chance to like use that to, to promote stuff. So like that, no one's going to tell me no. There's no, how do you do it? You just, you see, oh, these schmucks could do it. Why can't I? Kids these days are spoiled. They didn't realize what the internet was like in 1999. It wasn't, yeah, it, YouTube wasn't a thing. Right, YouTube wasn't a thing. Instagram wasn't a thing. But I did have, I did have ya- a Yahoo list. <laughs> That's how I promote, like you, you would sign up on the Yahoo groups list and, uh, and people could sign up at the, like I would have a clipboard sign up your email address to get, you know, I did marketing. So it's like, so we would have a list of thousands of, and then you sent out, you know, the week before the show, you go, yeah, show's on Saturday. Come. So uh, I did have, I was doing some research on Twitter before the show. And I, I did see a picture of you at 20. I think you were at 23. You kind of said this 2023. 20, Remember that was a thing, me at 20. And I saw you singing and I'm like, is this karaoke? Is he in a band? What's the story here? And I'm glad to get this story out of you. Uh, you were a singer. Did you write the lyrics as well, too? Yeah, I wrote the, wrote the lyrics. I mean, it was a hardcore band. It's not really singing. So you really right? can't. Yeah, you're just a screamer, basically. Right. But our album, we, we put out one full-length album. It's on Spotify. You can you can actually listen to it. What's the name of the band? Tell people. Friendly Fire. The album is Initiative. Did you, did you name the band? Kind of. I mean, kind of, I guess. Yeah. I barely know how that even happened. I mean, we just, we yeah. started out, like, it was me and my my Russian friend who lived down the block, uh, he played guitar and, and it's, it's, it's one of those things where you're friends with people on the block. Right. I mean, when you're younger, younger, when you're you know, 12, 11 years old. So like a fr- another friend down the block had, uh, cause it's New York. Remember blocks are like, there's like yeah. 80 houses. So who's got drums. You're right. in the band. Yeah. Right. He had, he had, his father played the drums. He was in like some cover band or Beatles cover band or something. So he had a drum set in his in his basement. He wasn't a good drummer. Like my friend that played the drum, he w- he didn't end up being in the band. But we would go. He would go with the guitar, whatever. And then like I was in musical theater, so I could act. I could sing decently. Uh, and we would like we were listening at that point. We were listening to like Nirvana and Soundgarden and like Radio Green Day, Offspring. And then we just why don't we write a couple of songs, whatever? They were fucking. They were horrible. Okay, <laughs> I mean it was very derivative stuff because. Well, you're we young. Good what do you want? To, you're like 15 or something. Right. But then like my, my, my Russian friend, uh, he had a, a Latvian friend who wanted to learn how to play guitar. So he taught him how to play play guitar. And then at some point, and then we started going to shows because we got into, you know, the punk scene. Yeah. And then then eventually we, fa- we found uh, uh, another kid that played bass and another kid that played uh, drums. Not and, on Craigslist because that wasn't a thing. No, at the, the, then Craigslist was a thing. It was, was, it, was more, it was more. It was more. It was more. Who's in the neighborhood and who goes to shows and who knows who? It was a lot of AOL 
chat rooms, <laughs> right? You ASL go into and, 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 yeah, but it, that's what it was. We found our we found our drummer via via AOL, via, via hanging out in Brooklyn punk and whatever chat rooms. And I play drums, and I live in Manhattan Beach. Okay, let's meet up or whatever. And then with that, that's it. And then since I started booking shows, obviously we had place to play. And then and then what you do is you trade shows with other bands. So Maybe. like like a band in New Jersey wants to play my place. So I go, well, do you have, did you, oh, we book shows over here. So you book our band and we book yeah. your band. And then you do that. You trade shows. You said you went on tour. Um, take me through that because uh, you, you probably played some good venues and some terrible venues. And you probably slept in some bad places, maybe some cars, maybe uh, on top of each other. Uh, take me through like the struggles of being an unknown band, basically, or underground band and then traveling the country. And maybe the worst venue you've been, to, been in, like just kind of like, uh, what's that like for, what are you, 18, 19, 20 years old? We were talking? Uh, the first time would be nine, between 19 and 23. Okay. Uh, uh, the first time we went on, went on tour, when, when, I, when you say on tour, uh, it means that you, you contacted a whole bunch of people from around the country and tried to set up shows in some type of order in which you're going from city to city in some type of logical way. Maybe you have a day off, you're playing one, you're playing uh, outside suburb of Atlanta on Saturday, and then you're driving to Valdosta, Georgia to play a community center that someone has. A, you, a lot of times it's just a lot of sketchy people and you're, it's, it's the internet. You're so hopeful you're, that there's going to be a venue when you show up. It's like, it's what's hopeful there's going to be a show when you show up. <laughs> we, we showed up in Tampa on our first, our first tour. And when we say tour, like we didn't have a contract. It was kind of just like, uh, it, whatever you, you play for gas money. It's like, yeah. It's, it's the punk scene. It's the type of thing that no one's really trying to make money off of it. It just, if there's 50 kids that come to a show for five bucks and there's two fifty, whatever you take out, the promoter takes out a little for the flyers that they made. And then it's just like you split the money amongst the, the bands, that type of thing. Uh, but we, we showed up to, to Tampa and the, the, the apparently it, the show is at a homeless shelter. Okay. And it was canceled and it, there was no show that day. Yeah. They, they, uh, the homeless shelter felt bad enough for us because it was a homeless shelter that actually did do shows. It wasn't like a one-off okay. thing. So they had shows like maybe once or twice a week that they actually did shows. But apparently the person that we had contact with, there was actually, there was a flyer for the show. We even received the flyer in an email. It was listed on like some internet show site. So it's like, it's not like whatever, but we show up and the homeless shelter has no idea what we're talking about. Because there's no show today or whatever. Uh, they they bet for us that they offered us uh, food from well, the home shelter. So uh, it was and, probably and one of the best meals you had on the road. No, we refused it. What? <laughs> how do you take my? How do you take food from a homeless shelter? We're five suburban kids that have enough. We we we're doing. Well, I, I assume you're enough money poor. in our pocket know. that we're not going to take fucking stale sta- sandwiches from oh, a homeless. I'm not saying to take from the poor. I, I assume you were poor as well. We were that poor, playing for pennies. Instead, but I mean, you still, I mean, I had a job and people had like, summer jobs. I mean, we had enough money to get a sandwich. Well, I, I was thinking of, I've seen like the behind the music from Metallica, like they're talking about eating like bologna in their hand. I guess it wasn't. No, that, no, we uh, did that. Well, our, our bassist was the poorest one. He, his, his typical meal was a loaf of bread and a stick of butter. Yeah. That's what, because a loaf of bread and a stick of butter, he could, that's like three, three days worth of meals. Would he eat the butt end of the bread though? That's the most because you're supposed to throw that out. It's gross. Would he eat no, that? I think he ate it. 
Yeah. We we also had a like a camping like a like a pot and like we we would like sleep in campgrounds and like make beans like it it like almost like, it feels like it's like like the eighteen hundreds we're making beans and stuff a little little camp uh, little oven thing no s'mores now nah, we wouldn't make s'mores we'd also we'd also we also shoplifted a ton out of grocery stores oh well geez statue limitations are up on that I suppose but uh... no well we were touring with another band. And this is this where we're in where somewhere in up in in Western New York, only no I think I remember only in New York, and the whole tour this is like we're like in the last week like we've been out for like four weeks and it was like a five week tour, uh, us and the other band so because these mega grocery stores, like it was almost like you'd, you, you could basically take anything you want and shove it in your pants and leave, type of stuff. So that's a stick that's, of butter, just throw it in your. I guess you wouldn't stick, put a stick of butter in your pants, but yeah. No, well, uh, our, our guitarist was like five seven and like one hundred and twenty pounds. He was he was scrawny and whatever. Uh, he was the best out of all of us. I, I remember in Virginia, he comes out. He comes out of whatever Piggly Wiggly, and uh, he has a hoodie on. But like he's he's like a stick figure. He had a hoodie on. He comes back to the parking lot and then pulls out a bottle of wine. And about a four foot kielbasa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a joke there that I'm just gonna let it go. But, How did uh, you get that out? But like, <laughs> I, you, typically it was like wrap sandwiches, stuff yeah. that you could like shove in your pants. Like, I didn't do it most of the time, but uh, the band that we were with, they they were stupid enough because they were from the Bronx. So the, the Bronx people are worse than Brooklyn. I don't know those the stereotypes of New Yorkers like specific to like borough. It's one in the morning. We go into whatever uh, Wegmans or whatever the hell it was, super grocery store. But it's one in the morning. It's not like there's many people there or anything. Yeah. So we we our band we buy our stuff and everything like that. We're just buying sandwiches or whatever, like cheap stuff. Uh, then so you know the, the there's two cop cars that come by and they're and like what the hell's going on and like that that they're being they're handcuffed or whatever because they thought it was a smart idea. To, to not just steal the stuff, but sit in their cafe section and eat it. <laughs> They're getting really bold. Right. And just eat, just we're going to sit here and eat, even though there's no one else in the store. So we, we had to, we had to uh, uh, spend uh, all of our merch money in order to bail them out. Well, well, there you go. Uh, but there's no big stories. Like most of the stories that I have from the band is us, a band of nerds, essentially. We played Scrabble in the van. <laughs> okay we that's brought a laptop uh during the, the the most known thing that you you you'd be driving and dri- i'm driving the van and all you hear are like like two 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 of us had laptops and er- they were playing roller coaster tycoon oh, so all you hear game, the, yeah. oh, the whole six hour ride is Wee! it's Wee! like the sims when you're so own, you own like a roller coaster park basically right right but we were a bunch of nerds and then we'd show up and like play this show at some like frat house or something like that where the show is. Then after the show, we're being offered like GHB and cocaine. And we're just like, we just want to download the new Homestar video and go to sleep. If you got a sandwich, that'd be great too. <laughs> no, no, we would get fed. A lot of times we would get fed, but a lot of times we would get, do you want drugs? It's like, we're or alcohol or something like I barely drank. Like two of us would, uh, obviously the two Russians, they vodka, whatever. That's perfectly fine. But I mean, most of the time it's us going like, we just want to take our sleeping bags 
and uh, and watch some internet web videos because Homestar Runner was big back then. I don't know. I don't know what that is. I don't know what Homestar was. It's Homestar not, Runner. Familiar. Flash it doesn't video? sound familiar to me for some reason. Okay, trust me. You 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 know what it is. It's one of the first internet cartoons. Okay. With yeah. the with the strong bad with the the boxing gloves on the computer. Uh, it sounds. Trust me, familiar. you're old enough. You should know. I know. I should know. I'll, I'll Google it after the show. Home, what is it? Homestar Runner. Yeah, Homestar Runner. All right, remind me when we, when we hang out because okay. I want to check it out. So I'm not aware of what you're talking about. So you don't have like a disastrous uh, uh, performance as far, or like just like maybe one person in the audience or something like that. Nothing too crazy. Uh, no, I like mean, that. it was it was punk shows. So I mean, it's a lot of a lot of you're performing at a venue that isn't like safe. Like like oh, we're playing on top of boxes. I mean, like like they made the stage and, and but nothing like the cops showing up for a noise complaint. But there was nothing. Outside of that story where the other band got got arrested, I mean, we, we if, you're, respect- if you're a punk band, you're not supposed to ask about safety. <laughs> what, kind of, what kind of fraudulent punk, punk band are you? Yeah, we were in that type of punk band. <laughs> so, uh, how did you get into becoming? Uh, you know, you were a punk band lead singer, you're a promoter, uh, you're doing your web design, and then someday you said, "Hey, I want to be a comedian." How does that work? Now that was before all of that. What? When were you a comedian? Like 18? 17. You were a comedian at 17? Yes. Okay, how does one become a comedian at 17? Just like how do you become a promoter? You just do it. Who cares? You just barge your way on. Move over, Chappelle. No, <laughs> this is no my time. that's not how it works. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I went to acting class. I, I started acting when I was 12. I went to acting and musical theater. Uh, the typical progression for, for this is you go to acting class, and uh, you learn, you start learning how to act and you go, I don't like what I'm doing. I, like, I have to read these people's words. This sucks. So then you get into improv. So I got into improv at 14. So I started taking improv classes in Manhattan uh, at HB Studios, which is a fairly well-known acting school. Uh, and because uh, now, now you get to make up the words, right? But the problem is you have to deal with other people because you have to do scenes with other people. So then you then after that, when you said I turned 17 and then I say, I'm just I'm just going to be by myself because I was I was in a teenage improv troupe. We were horrible. by the way. Did uh, you have like a you had like a pun nickname? What was your uh, generation gap? <laughs> generation that was the gap. name. It was, uh, I, I was only part of it because there was an ad in backstage. Backstage is an industry. Uh, newspaper in New York City where you get acting listings, audition listings, and there was a new uh, looking to form a new improv teenage improv troupe. And it's like, well, I mean, I'm good at improv, and you know, my father was in Chicago City Limits, so like, I I have a background. He was in it when I was like six years old. He was in an improv troupe, and I remember sitting on the couch in my living room when they were practicing, and I'd be giving them like the suggestions. Yeah, as a six year old. Not knowing what the hell's even going on, like pick something that li- that is in the kitchen. I'd be a blender. Okay, there you go. Something like that. Is that how is that how Blender became a thing? No, no. Blenderhead. Blenderhead is a song in a bad religion. Oh, okay. I thought that, we that's, hit that's, on the, there. that's the that's the that's how Blenderhead comes about. It's not interesting. <laughs> it's an homage to bad religion. There you go. I so I was I was in this, this improv class and uh, a guy, uh, another student. I mean, I was the youngest one in the class. I mean, I was seventeen, and most of the people are twenties, thirties, forties, whatever. Uh, a guy in the cl- a guy in the class, new to the class, uh, was also good. Whatever, and it, 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 it's a three hour class, so you a bunch of people hanging out or whatever. Uh, he lived in Brooklyn. 
he lived in Sheepshead Bay. I lived in Mill Basin, so it wasn't that far away. So he he offered to drive instead of me taking the subway home. He's like, I'll drive you home. So I'm like, okay. Uh, in that time in high school, I was in uh, creative writing elective English class because I hate reading. So I just wrote a lot of funny stuff. I just was writing just funny stuff because they would ask an assignment, write whatever, and I would it would be funny. Uh, and the the guy uh, in the car what was doing cut was doing stand up comedy. And he said, you should go to Pips, which is technically the first comedy club in the in the world. 1962 opened in Brooklyn in Sheepshead Bay. And he goes, Pips has a as an open mic every Wednesday. You should go down and try some of this stuff out. I'm like, are you nervous okay. the first time you try it? You, you, you no. walk up there, you're confident as a 17 year old. I was doing improv. I was doing improv on stage in front of audiences. I was doing acting. I'm not my st- I have no I have no stage fright. It's just nothing getting the reps expect. in, basically. What? It's just getting the reps in. Like, eventually, you just get yeah. you build a certain confidence. And and surely you bombed. Even if your material was good, surely you bombed sometimes, right? Oh, I, all the time, except for that first time. <laughs> well, t- take me through the first time. All of a sudden, it set a false precedent. It turns out it was a small sample size. And there, there you go. That's our right, first. Right, but then yeah, you got to get, get, get the taste, the nibble. I went on. It was an 8.30 open mic show. There was like maybe 30 people in the audience and there was like 15 comics on the list because you just basically just show up and it's an open mic. So you just put, yeah. you, you give your name. But in that open mic, you didn't, they didn't go by the order of the list. The MC was in charge of like of the show. So they you'd go on whenever they told you to go on. Since I'm 17 and I've never done stand up comedy before, uh, I don't go on last, but I went on before the drunk. <laughs> there was there was literally a drunk guy there that wasn't a comic that wanted to sign up. They put him on last because the show goes on forever because every comic gets like five minutes and if 15 comics, I mean, it's just, it's a lot of bad comedy. Well, so half I get, the crowd is probably the other comics and I don't know, are the other comics supportive are the, uh, like you don't want to be, yeah, how, how does that work? What's the dynamic as far as half the crowd being other people just waiting to get on stage and that way they're to laugh necessarily. Well, you had half and half and also because, it's South Brooklyn. There's nothing else to do. If you're leaving, you're going home. You're not going and hanging out at another club or anything. So for the most part, most of the comics, the, the amateur comics, I mean, it's an open mic. Uh, they're like stuck around. I mean, because the, at the bar or whatever, it's the show's from like 830 to 11. I get up and compared to the, my father drove me there. My father was there. Uh, my father told me, way after not like what years after it's like uh when you told me when he's like when you told me you were gonna wanted to get up at pips i thought it was a horrible idea because <laughs> i thought that i would i would I, that i would but get support right at the time right even though i was good at improv and my father knew i was good at improv he just thought that like you doing stand-up comedy it, it's not gonna work out and i got up and i did my original material did my original material about the it, observational stuff because i like i grew up on carlin and uh, Robert Klein and bought like all of my fam, my, my parents uh, comedy albums. So like, like but I knew I, I was trying to emulate that. So I just wrote like, here, here's what I think. Here's what's stupid about the movies. Here's what's stupid about this commercial. Here's what's stupid about this. And it wasn't, it wasn't half bad. It's okay. Compared, right. It was okay. And compared to the other comics that weren't very good, it got laughs because, and also the comics were supportive because Here's a 17-year-old kid who looks 13. It's, you could create it, you could create it on a curve. Like it's like it's almost like it's cute. Like, oh, like this 13-year-old, right. potentially 17-year-old, whatever the audience may think. 
Uh, it's like America's Got Talent. Like it's like, like a ten-year-old comedian on there, and your, your jokes aren't necessarily perfect, but they're fine right. for a ten-year-old. Right. Plus, 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 I'm doing I'm doing material that like a thirty-five-year-old comic could do. Like I'm not I'm not I'm I'm not doing like oh you know what I hate about when kids uh, harass me at the lunch table. It's like no, I was I was making I was making the dick jokes about commercials and stuff. I was doing like what I would see on Jerry Seinfeld do. I would do yeah. You know, I, I was wa- I, I watched Comedy Central. I was watching short attention span theater and Mark Marin when he was the, doing the you know the clip shows and Wally Collins stand up stand up. I mean I was into stand up comedy, so I just like I'm just gonna emulate this and. And then once I did well there, then a couple of comics are like, well, there's this open mic in Manhattan here and there's, you could go there. And then I just, okay, I'm going to go out. And then I ended up uh, within a year, like being like in New York city, you don't make money doing comedy. Really. You get mm-hmm. it. If you can get paid to do a spot in New York city, you've made it. Okay. And getting paid is like 20 bucks. Okay. Cause it's, it's do you have to, uh, have you ever seen this show crashing before? No, but I, 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 it's on my list to watch. Okay, it's really, really good. And I, I'm forgetting the guy's name now. I'm sure you probably know the comic's name, or maybe I can't think of it. Uh, he's very straight laced and kind of goofy, but he's a guy who just wants to become a, a comedian in New York. And one of the things, you know, from the start, they made him like hand out flyers. Is right? That, no, it, yep, yep. You that, can do that fly- Yes, I did that for Boston Comedy Club. Yeah, to get on stage and on weekdays, you do fly. You do. Uh, it's, it's also in New York City. It's called barking. Not yeah. just flyering, barking like you'd be outside, uh, like Boston comedy. Typically, the bad comedy clubs, the ones that need to drag in tourists, <laughs> the ones that do that, where all you have to do is show. You know, you show as long as you got like got in with the booker and the manager, whatever. Like you, it'll be a Tuesday night, and uh, you know, eight thirty show, and basically, as long as you're halfway, to, as long as they know that you're not going to completely ruin the room in five minutes on stage. They'll let you. They go go and if you if you could bark in a couple of people, we'll give you five. We'll give you five minutes. Pete Holmes is the guy, by the way. I had to do some googling yeah. there for a second. Yeah, he's he's funny. I like him. It was a. I recommend it. Put it on your list, and maybe we'll talk some uh, TV shows in a second. Uh, that was something I also uh, kind of stood out to me as far as your Twitter feed. But uh, I'm enjoying this conversation as far as comedy. Uh, I, your biggest like bombing, like worst experience, stuff about like bad uh, bad audiences, or maybe like the the most uh, most heckling you can recall? Like, is there sort of like a flashback you get to where you, you I mean, really... I didn't, it's not, it, it doesn't happen as much as you think. No? I think that the, 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 word, the worst experience that I had for about a minute was uh, in, a, in a, uh, a sketchy suburb of Philadelphia. Uh, to put things into perspective, how long ago this was, this is like 1998. Uh, I was working with Jim Norton, Sure. Jim Norton was the middle. Okay, okay. so oh, he really? wasn't okay. even headlining. Uh, a, a, a comedy magician was headlining. Uh, I was hosting. So that, typically that's the structure of a show. A host comes out, does 10 or 15 minutes for a, a road show. In New York City and New York City and LA, typically it's a host and then there's like 12 comics that all do 15 minutes each in a row and the show goes on forever. The show goes on for like until there's no one until everyone leaves. The show will continue to go on, but on normal like road shows outside of the big cities and not in clubs, uh, would be like just a three man show. So you have a host, a middle or a feature, and then a headliner or a closer. A lot of times the host was a local person because you wouldn't travel for like you get paid like twenty five bucks 
And then the middle gets like 75 to 100 and the headliner gets like 200 or so. Uh, uh, I, I would get gigs in the New York City area because uh, I had a car, because I had my mom's car. Because my mom wouldn't need, because she, she'd commute to work, but like my dad could drive her, whatever. So if I needed a car to go to New Jersey for a gig on Friday night, like I could, I could get it. But a lot of New York comics didn't have cars because they worked in the city most often. So I would get a lot of gigs because I could drive other comics because I had yeah. a car. So it was one of those things where- It broke a tie. It's like, should we invite him or should we invite him? Well, he's got right. a car. Who should yeah. we book? It's like, well, if we book, if we book Cooper- that means, uh, you know, he could drive he could drive Eddie Ift because whatever. And I knew most of the comics anyway. So it's the type of thing like I'll pick you up. You know, where, where do you live? I'll pick you up. And, you know, they, we'll meet at the comic strip. We'll meet at the comedy cellar, that type of thing. But uh, at that show, uh, I had a joke back then that mentioned that I was Jewish. And for like 30 sec, 30 seconds straight, people yelled out kite at me. But in a lot like they I was it was halfway through my act. They were already laughing into my set. They it almost they felt as if they were trying to participate in the show. They weren't doing it like angrily. even. Yeah. Almost just like, oh, kike, oh, kike, kike. I'm like, this is weird. I'm on stage going, but I see smiling faces. So it just it it's it blows my mind. And then it just stops. I continue my act and like no one ever addresses it again. But that was like the that's the weirdest heckle type of moment or anything like that. I I mean, there, there, I don't have that many interesting comedy stories or was there somebody you watched that wasn't necessarily at the level they are now. And you said like, this guy's got it. This girl's got oh, it. All tons of, I mean, hello. I did open mics with Dimitri Martin and I'm like, this guy, this guy's got it. Uh, I, I mean, I, I took the train uh, the tons of times with the Z's Ansari. Uh, I mean, we wrote, I mean, we were at the comic strip. We're doing spot. I'm doing the 1140 spot and he's doing the 1150 spot. I'm bringing him up because at that yeah. point in the show, the host is gone. Like the host would go from 830 to 1130. And then at the comic strip, because I was past there in New York City that you could sit where you passed at clubs. That means like that you would get spots that you didn't have to like audition or anything. But a comic strip had like a late night schedule. So like because, you know, who knows? As long as there's an audience there and they could sell drinks comics will go on yeah uh, but they would only book the show up to 11 30 so like they would book 8 30 on a weekly basis typically you called up uh, an answering machine essentially and you left your availabilities for all these clubs so you'd call up tuesday to, to the comedy cellar and monday to the comic strip and it's an answering machine and you go jordan cooper uh i'm available anytime except wednesday or i'm available you know that type of thing and then on that wednesday they would have the whole week schedule and you'd go and there'd be a clipboard or you could call up and you go, uh, do I have any spots? And they go, yeah, you got Tuesday at 1110 or, you know, like whatever the hell it is. Uh, but as long as you were passed at the club, at the comic strip, like you could go on the quote, the late night schedule. So it, it's a first come first serve. You show up and you, there was always a little note, like one of those comment cards on the back on the clipboard and you write your <laughs> name and then, yeah. So you so people would cut tell Alexandros come okay whatever and then like basically from eleven thirty until whenever the last audience member leaves, you got up and were able to do five minutes, but instead of the host being there, you just brought up the next guy. So you were there. So when when I was when I was doing when I was doing comedy in New York City when I was that age, like a lot of the late night was me, Aziz, Amy Schumer, Judah Friedlander, uh. 
Anyone anyone else? Was Judah doing that that uh, gimmick with the hat uh, all the way back then? No, no, he wasn't the world champion back then. World champion. Yeah, he still looked gimmick. like that. He still looked schlubby, but he didn't. He wasn't doing that gimmick. Yeah. Uh, Ross or was 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 he in there? Who's Jeffrey Ross and who's his buddy? Yeah, David, well, Jeffrey David Ross Hell? was a big was big in the city. He would he wouldn't be doing late night spots. He did regular spots. Like in big in the city at that time was Louis C.K., David sure. Tell, Jeffrey Ross, Todd Barry. Uh, Gaffigan wasn't even like when I when I started. Gaffigan was st- only got like crappy spots, but I mean he was just coming from Indiana. I mean, but we'd also see you'd also see a lot of times in in New York City, like all the drop ins. You'd see all the Letterman warm ups because what ends up happening if someone's going to be on Letterman on like Thursday night, Eddie Brill, who was the at the time the talent uh, person for for Letterman, who was Howdy also Booker. a comic that I was friends with. Uh, you'd work on your four and a half minute Letterman set around town. So like, and but you'd also see anyone that's coming from LA. So like I, I saw, I remember in the span of a week, I saw like Mitch Hedberg do the same set like oh. 12 times. Right. I I've seen David tell probably 200 times. I mean, doing 10 minute sets at, at midnight at the comedy cellar. So like you're, that's like, the, it's like the Mecca of comedy. Like the, until you leave until until one, once I left to Louisville and be like, wow, you, you realize how what, what I was around? I mean, I saw Chris Rock drop in at least 10 or 15 times. Where, when it was Chris Rock. And it was Chris Rock, right. Yeah. Like Adam he, Sandler, Jerry Seinfeld. I mean, like all the Saturday Night Live people. All the, they just the bump thing, you, right? Like it's not, it's not, they're not Oh, not no, they bumped the whole show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> Sorry, yeah, guys, you're done. <laughs> right, right. The, the, the worst spot to possibly have. Uh, which my my friend who I, I did the road with a lot, uh, Andy Pitts, he was Andy Vastola back in the, back then. Uh, he did the spot after Chris Rock does an hour and a half. Oh, you're 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 dead. <laughs> Good luck. Right, you're you're dead. Right. I mean, you're and, and and I've I've seen these guys bomb. Like when Chris Rock did his, I I remember that night exactly. He did ninety minutes. He bombed, like bombed, bombed. The bar is set too high. You can't. Well, what are you supposed to just go home? That's it. It's over. No, no, Chris Rock bombed. Oh, oh Chris Rock bombed. No, because you can't bomb the first five minutes because they're they're just in awe that it's like wow, it's Chris Rock. But talking to people, but like if you talk to Chris Rock, because I would be in like the little booth at the comic strip, and like when people were going to get on stage, it's such a small green room there. So like, there's a little booth where you can see out and where the camera is and whatever, and then there's a little place to hang up your coat or whatever. It's very small. So whoever's like sitting up in the booth, which could be anyone, just typically another comic or something, uh, like someone would come in and just like look and step on the little step, look above and go, you know, how's the crowd? So like I've seen Chris Rock multiple times that way. And he's purposely, I mean, he, he literally, he doesn't want the crowd to be hot because he's trying out material that he's going to be doing on this award show next week. And he needs to know whether or not it's good or they're reacting because it's Chris Rock. So a lot of times what he'd do is get up on stage. The first five minutes is completely hot because it's like, oh, my God, look who's here. And then he'd basically just talk about his day like he'd riff, <laughs> not crowd work, but just riff. Yeah. And just see if anything He basically it's material that he thought up of or something like. And he's just coming up with premises, but nothing is paced together. He's going very slow. And then every once in a while, he'll throw in like like a like a, an award show, like a one liner, two liner type of thing. 
and see how much of a laugh he gets. And then meander places, not be very energetic. And because he, he that's what he's using the stage time for. It's not it's not to go up just to, for vanity's sake. He's going up because he need he needs to know if this material is good. Seinfeld, well, on the other hand, Seinfeld, for, okay. Seinfeld, on the other hand, typically uh, had he was he was more of a like writer comic. Like everything was planned out to to the word before he would get on stage and then he would tweak it from there. But he never got on stage and just like, I'm going to work out this premise type of thing. He, he was a wordsmith type of yeah. person. So whenever Seinfeld did a drop and typically he killed because he could do 20 minutes and then you'd see the same 20 minutes a month from now and go, oh, I see he removed this thing. He removed this word. He Oh, he added this thing here. So during that time in New York City, like I was going out, I was in the city five, six nights a week after when I was 17 after school and then after work uh, later than that. And I was just getting a master class in stand-up comedy writing because you're seeing you're I'm seeing David Tell doing like the same 20 minute type of set like five times in one week and hearing a jo- a new joke on Monday and then on Friday night show the the new joke that was like two minutes and 10 seconds long is now a minute and 30 seconds and has an extra line here and a pause there. And it's getting, a, it's getting a round of applause. I, I always love like the, the process and like, this is something Seinfeld will talk about. I think rock as well too. I think they run a round table or something like that. And yeah, the idea of just one word, one word can completely change the joke and make it perfect or make it terrible and usable. And to, to your point about, you know, coming, going out there and rock, not using his best material or not even, or he's just kind of figuring it out. And obviously it takes for a one hour special. They don't just like show up. It's that's a lot of work to pump out that one hour. And I remember Louis CK talking about uh, how he liked to challenge himself. He would say, you know, you know, typically a lot of you, you start strong, you, you say, you know, a good closer, you know, he, he would use his worst material. What he knew is his worst material, his worst five minutes to start. And he wanted to like dig his way out of it the whole time, which is, I guess, a cha- I don't know, I think a little challenge to himself at a board of doing the same thing every single night. But uh I just always love the whole process of, uh, of comedy. That's it's just fascinating. Right. Or, or you do, you did the typical way is that you open with your closer and you try to find a better closer. That's what it was. Yeah. There right. You Cause you, your closer is typically your bet. Your the thing that you're going to get off on a big, big round of applause, a standing ovation type of thing. And then you go, well, I'm going to open with that now, which means I got to buy, I got to write better. I got to write material that could beat that as the closer. Did you add, develop a character of some sort or you have like a certain, like uh, or that was just you. They're just me and jokes. It was, I, I had no, I really had no point of view. Like that was my number one weakness of I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm 19 and here's a half an hour of material on like just it's observational comedy. I mean, my, my shtick wasn't, you barely knew about me until I moved here to Louisville. Then I developed uh, more of a point of view type of act, but it yeah. was more for the road. Like I did a lot of, when, when, when I moved here to Louisville, cause I was doing more road work. Uh, I wrote a lot, most of my material since I was doing a lot of work in the Midwest and the South. And I'm a Jewish New York kid, redheaded Jewish New York kid that talked fast with an accent, you know, the, the Northeastern accent. Uh, I just did a lot of uh, fishing, uh, you know, fish out of water type of stuff. If I'm from New York and now I'm down South and I don't understand any of this stuff, I'm going to point out all the stupid stuff, <laughs> but make it sound like I just, I want to be one of you. Yeah. Right. Because I, when I first, did that material. I learned uh, a lot from RIP Ron Schock, 
who was one of the original Texas outlaws with like Bill Hicks back in the day. Ron Schock, amazingly underrated comedian. One of the best storytelling comedians ever. I'm not sure if I'm aware of Ron Schock. I'll have to check him out. Yeah, it, it, he was on The Tonight Show in like the 70s. I mean, like he's old school. But I work with him a lot. I got I got in with him, working with him as, as a middle act because uh, I met him in Las Vegas. He lived in Las Vegas. I went to the Trop because uh, there's a comedy club there. But I was in Las Vegas to play poker. Like, cause I play poker for a living. So every once in a yeah. while I go to Las Vegas for two weeks or whatever. Uh, but since I was a comic, you could hang out in the girl. Like it, typically if you're a comic, like you could go into any comedy club and go, I'm a comic and hang out in the back. Right. I mean like that. It's, it's like a club. clubhouse. Type you're in the club or you're out of the club and you're right. In. So at, at the Trump, Ron Schock was headlining. Uh, and I didn't know him that I, at, at that point, I didn't really know much about him, uh, but he played a lot of, since he, he was, cause he was older comics. I, I, if he wasn't like traveling outside of Las Vegas during the week, he'd play poker. Uh, at, and and, and he, was, he was a good poker player. Yeah. So instead of bonding in the green room over, you know, hey, what? Hey, you're, oh, you're from New York. And like, what basically the question is, what the hell are you doing in Las Vegas? Why are you like, <laughs> you're not a local comic just hanging out. Like, why? Are you? And I said, no, I'm here to play poker or whatever. Uh, I said, oh, you're on vacation. I was like, no, no, I, I play poker for a living. And then his eye, like, Oh, he doesn't know another professional poker player or whatever because he doesn't consider himself professional. So we talked like that night, like after the show, we talked until like three in the morning, mostly about poker. Yeah. So then he would do have gigs in the South or whatever. And uh, if if I was in the area, like he'd say, come out, come down and do a guest spot or something. Right. You'd like, come down, come down to Chattanooga and uh, and uh, hang out and uh, you could do guest spot like guest spots means you go and get paid and they'll give you 10 minutes of time. You go on before, you know, right after the host, just whatever. Uh, and then like, I got work out of it. I got, you know, I got feature work with him, but he, and that was like the first, when I did the guest spots, he never even, he didn't even see my act. He was just like, basically he's a poker player and he's from New York city. Good and enough. it seems like it, enough people that I've talked to kind of know who he is. I've heard the name. He could look up on the internet or something like that. Uh, he saw my act. He said, and he said, uh, he said, you're an extremely good writer, but uh, your stuff is, uh, your stuff is never going to work in, in the South unless you change your attitude. And I, I didn't understand what that meant until Hanging out at like a Waffle House. I mean, this is the type of two in the morning Waffle House type of stuff that is like you talk too fast. Your jokes are good. Southern people aren't stupid. They're just they just think slower. Said so slow down. And then uh, the stuff that I was making fun of, he told me, he said, you need to word your premises where you're not attacking something that they know that you want your you want to get invited into the clubhouse. Well, so, you want them to like you. Right. No, that's the point. Like he said, that he said up North, if you're in Michigan, if you're in like, that's what I was used to Northeast. You could be an asshole as long as you're funny. Combative is good. Right. You're good. Right. You could be they. You could make fun of them all you want. People want you to make fun of them. They were just like, no, make fun of our town. <laughs> like we're, we're horrible. Right. You can poke fun at anything you want. You go into Philadelphia and you, you took a crap on Philadelphia. They love you. Right. That type of attitude. But down you got south, it in there, by the way. Make fun of anything you want. There, there, if there's a checklist of uh, <laughs> blenderisms. <laughs> uh, give, give me uh, give me your Mount Rushmore. If you want to stray off five, six, whatever it is uh, of, of your favorite comedians all time. 
uh, my favorite comedians are who should be on the Mount Rushmore. Well, is that well? Like, it's, it's your personal, your answer. I mean, obviously, the well, I mean, consensus. I, I, th- I think there's what's two, the difference? On, the two, the two ones that are unequivocally, there's no debate on the Mount Rushmore, is George Carlin and Richard Pryor. Yeah, like there's there's no debate that you could debate anything past there, but there's literally no debate. if you don't have Carlin and Pryor on your Mount Rushmore, your, your Mount Rushmore is doesn't is, is not valid. Uh, the the one that should be up there, but is Lenny Bruce, but I consider Lenny Bruce is a pioneer of the style, but not necessarily the greatest comic. How long was this run? It wasn't, I feel like it wasn't, wasn't that, that long, long eight yeah. years or something, but if it wasn't for Lenny Bruce, none of the observational comedy wouldn't have existed the way it did. Like he's one of those things of the first person that does it, but doesn't make him the best person that did it. Fair right. Enough. Like Car- Carlin and Pryor, wouldn't have happened the way they did without Lenny Bruce pioneering the way. But I don't consider Lenny Bruce to be a great comic. Speaking of a wordsmith, Carlin, I mean, every word is just perfect. Uh, yeah. Seinfeld. Sein- to, me, yeah. My, my, to, to me, my Mount Rushmore is Carlin, Pryor, Seinfeld. Then, then it gets, then it gets di- Stephen Wright. Oh, she's good. Dave Potts is a big fan of uh, Stephen Wright. Yeah, but that's for me. But I mean, like, truthfully, like, like Chappelle or Rock. uh, No, no, I I think the the true, if you want to, if you include Lenny Bruce into this, Carlin Pryor, Bruce and Cosby, that would, that would be the the, the Mount Rushmore comedy. Yeah. But you um, can replace, but like, to me, uh, like Chappelle and and Chris Rock are top 10. I mean, like, that's why it's like, Carlin and Pryor, you cannot you cannot debate. But if you want to throw in, but you're personal, yeah. You're saying it's what it should be, but then like, yeah, yeah. It, it's yeah but my per- who cares about my personal? I love David Tell. I don't think he should be on the Matt Rushmore of comedy. I like a Tell too, <laughs> right? I like a Tell. I like that. I, I that's the style. I like a Tell Burr Lewis Black. Uh, uh, Hedberg. Hedberg's great. Head, yeah, Hedberg. Uh, Greg Giraldo. Uh, I mean, just the angry, the angry Northeast, you know, type of comic. Talk to me about, uh, you mentioned poker. You're, you're a poker pro. Uh, I saw this in one of your tweets, so I'm curious. I'm like, you, uh, well, I guess somewhere you found some time between making your websites and touring with a punk band. You also ran a poker game in New York City? Yeah, I ran a, ran a card room. Is this with like it, one of those my entire li- My entire life is, is... It's a big hustle, man. My my entire life is is me trying to never have a real job. <laughs> and you've, I think, I mean, have you been successful? Have you had a real like a quote unquote? Yeah, pretty job? much. And I haven't had a real job since I was like twenty one years old. Yeah, you never a like, real job, a job where you show up in an office and you and whatever the TPS reports or whatever the hell it is, you know, <laughs> that type of job. Where's your stapler? Right. Uh, the whole so, quest of never to have a real job. What's the deal with this underground poker room game that you ran? I mean, it's, I know celebrities uh, are famous for joining those. Like, I think a flick was a part of that. Ben Affleck. Uh, I don't know what, what, what kind of prestige you're talking about, but uh, and I don't. Can we dig into this? Can we talk about this? Yeah, sure. Why not? It was zero. <laughs> I mean, it was when I was what twenty five. It was uh, 15, what's 15? the guy's name from Rounders? I can't remember his name now. For Mike McDermott. Reason. There you go. Yeah, I was thinking of the Russian guy with the Oreos. Oh. Yeah, well, I, I'm just Teddy KGB. There you go. KGB. It wasn't that shady back. Okay. This was like in the. This was the moneymaker boom. This was like 2004, where poker exploded. Uh, uh, I was I I played I played poker online. I learned how to play on Poker Stars. 
pretty much. Then I played in some home games. And then other bit. Oh, there's a game in, in Queens. And I played in a game. There was a game in Queens on Saturdays. So me and my friend would go and, you know, it's a, it's a whatever game. And then someone said that there's a there's a club in, in Manhattan, but you can't get in unless you know someone. So like me, I, whoever I knew from that game, like, you know, let's go to 14th Street. Uh, you know, this was after the Mayfair close. This is this is this is not old school, old school New York poker. But the 14th Street PlayStation was like the the, the most known underground club in Manhattan. So I got in there and just I, I played, you know, 1020 limit hold'em, you know, those types of games there. And then like some I saw on Craigslist because they used to post on Craig advertising Craigslist. Uh, it was a game uh, the, uh, uh, upstanding uh, website and right. <laughs> nothing but five star reviews from Craigslist. Of course. <laughs> but th- there was there was a game in uh, in Brooklyn and they were looking for dealers. Now, at the time I was running. I ended up running some of the tournaments at that the Queens place because I I, I read I mean like I I'm I'm nuts when it comes to like studying and when I get involved in something I just I go deep down in the well and I'm just I'm gonna learn everything. Uh, so I knew like I knew the tournament directors association handbook the dealers handbook I learned I learned like everything about just how to run a game how just how to run something because most people didn't it was the boom and people just showed up out of the blue and it was a lot of college kids, but still you got some wall street people. You got, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't as seedy as like a rounders. So like I, I go to this, this game, it's in an office building in park slope. It's on the third floor and it's just like five tables set up in like what could have been a dentist's office. <laughs> and they turned into like, you know, there was a lounge where it could have been the waiting room. Like it's just, it, it's set up with five poker tables and came up and like, you know, there's a security camera and everything like that because I was used to that going to the clubs in Manhattan. Uh, and then I just I, I went there and the person that that owned the place, like pretty much didn't know what he was doing. Like he was a good hustler, you know, Italian guy, uh, early 30s. And I was like, what, 24, 25 at the time. And uh, within like two or three days, he basically said, well, you tell me how to do this. And I'm like, I didn't know how to die. All I could say is like, I I can make a procedure. I mean, like I've, I've been playing poker enough that like I could, I could operate to some level of with some level of integrity, a business like this. Uh, so basically I was in charge of poker operations. He was in charge of the, he was in charge of like the, the, he was the, the room. I didn't have to worry about who's cleaning the toilets or, you know, like there was, we had, we had a janitor guy, a, a friend of his that, you know, it was a lot. He was a little bit shady. Uh, but I mean, like he he had an arrest record for stealing cars or whatever. But when it came to the poker stuff, I ran the po. So I came up with the tournament schedule. I came up with the procedure to trade dealers, with to collect rake and all of that type of stuff. And then basically ran ran that for like I don't know three three and a half half years. We got raided twice. We had to move to another location. So I was arrested. What, what happens? You get like a heads up and you just come in the middle of games, or how does that work? Uh, the time that the the first time that we got raided, they raided us when we we promote we had our big three hundred dollar tournament. Like we had a we had, we normally we we wouldn't have three hundred dollar like seven table tournaments. Uh, but that was like the special like you know we promoted it for like three months, and people won like satellites. So it's like on Sunday we're having this tournament three o'clock. It's you know we promoted it, and apparently, uh, one of the, one of the people that came in. Uh, 
with someone else was an undercover cop and like half an hour into the tournament, like basically they busted down. Like we saw that we saw that the cops come up the elevator yeah. in the stairs and are in the cameras. And I'm like, okay, this, uh, this is going to be a problem. And then what, so you did it again though. You, you, it didn't chase you out of the business. I guess it's more of a slap on the wrist. Yeah. Well, there's not, there's nothing to, I mean, no one's been, they, they charge us with, they charge us with promoting gambling in the first degree, which is almost impossible to which prove. Is what? Like, what is it's that? a felony. Okay. A felony. Is that a felony? I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. But they have to prove that you're, they have to prove so much stuff. Uh, we got, we got a lawyer, uh, cause it was like 12 of us because it's everyone that's put that all the dealers, all the people that are running, that are part of the room. Uh, the judge in Brooklyn, the, the Brooklyn judge, like you're, they're here because of a poker. I mean, he acted like, like, what is it? So they offered us like a hundred dollar fine and disorderly conduct and like 20 hours of community service. And basically we just said, go screw yourself. Like, and, and, uh, the that lawyer, not, that, that was not late enough for you. No, dude, we didn't want to go. So the, our lawyer said that they're that we we submitted a uh, thirty thirty speedy trial, and then the, remember this is this is Brooklyn ADA. I mean, they have so many cases that uh, because it's probably much more important stuff is what you're saying. Yeah, there's much more important stuff, and because we're not we weren't all the operator of the room, right? The owner, there's owner, there's everything. So we we uh, we had a. a we had to split everyone into their own separate trials. Are they going to run 20, 12 trials? 10 of us have literally have no record. One of us has a record for like marijuana possession that they never got. They never got to jail for. And then one, then the, the owner who had, had a, a, a grand theft auto or some type of thing that, you know, he got probation for like 10 years prior to that. So they look at the, the okay, well, once, once the judge said that uh, we're going to need to, separate into 12 separate trials they basically the ada basically came to our lawyer and said uh just uh adp the acquittal contemplation of basically if you don't do anything for six months the, the, the this whole thing gets expunged they basically say we have the right to prosecute you for six months but for now you don't have to do anything did you, you just stop don't get for six trouble. months or you just like uh you know fire back up in another office building no we just fired it back up yeah, same office building or a different one? No, no, we got a different place. Okay. Yeah, well, and and yeah, I guess you said you got caught one more time, but again, probably the same. No, we caught- got twice at the same place. That's why we moved. Okay. We caught for the first time, and then we opened back. We opened back up two days later, and then three weeks from then, they came right back. I wasn't there that time, so I didn't go to jail that time. But it was just yeah. overnight. It's overnight something. Whatever. I mean, I've not. I've I've only I've been arrested twice. And one time, Fred, one time here for a, a, a unknowingly failure to appear for an unpaid parking ticket. But I never had that I because I moved and they must have sent the court that's here in court to my old apartment. And I just never got it. And then all of a sudden, some cop shows up at my door five years past the ticket date and says, <laughs> says I'm sorry Did to you say but you're under arrest on 15th and 8th. And yeah, you have no idea what they're talking about. Well, all I all I could all I could say is since we were all white, we were treated very well by the police. There you go. Uh, That's a whole other route we can go. That's another podcast. When I was arrested on the on the on the the unpaid parking ticket, the cop literally uh, because I I was I was in my pajamas. He let me like change. He he asked me because he, he he apologized for having to handcuff me. Yeah, he asked if they were too tight, and then when I got into the car, 
uh, 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 because it was a hot day, uh, rolled down the window and asked me if I was comfortable. Yeah, that's probably not standard procedure for everybody. We can just say that. It's probably not. Yeah. Um, So you were a poker pro. Uh, you played in Vegas or you, you is, I guess that's, I mean, I played in the New York city underground games and then Atlantic city I would play. And, uh, I, I played online, but I, online, I didn't play heavily. I mean, it was, that, that was recreational. I learned to play from playing poker stars and party poker, like limit Hold'em. Like I bought all the two plus two books. And like, like I said, anytime I get involved in something, I just get, I just, I can't, there's not enough content. Are you uh, are you writing your book still? Is it, is it ready to yeah, go? Yeah, no, no, I'm still. It's, it's getting there. It's it's. You slow. should have some time. Are you not knocking it out or what? I hate writing. I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> I write something and then I write 800 words and go, "What the hell am I talking about here?" There's an easier way for me to explain this. I'm the same I, way. I'm so poor. I'm so poor with my time efficiency when it comes to writing. And that, that that's your suggestion. You you are as right. well sometimes. Right, but that's how I got into DFS. Also, of like, oh, this thing is going on that I could. I could use my brain to to beat people that are less intelligent than me out of money with my intelligence. And I don't have to wake up. I can wake up whenever I want and do whatever <laughs> I want. And I have no boss. Okay. Sounds good to me. By the way, you have a hot take as far as poker, because uh, this is one of your tweets as well, too. I kind of pulled up and you mentioned it throughout the show. You like to play limit poker. Who likes limit poker? Oh, limit poker is so much better than no limit. One decision breaks you and that's not good. That's just too scary for you. Now limit it's 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 uh, the difference between no limit and limit. It, the the best way to put it is that uh, in no limit, the decisions are much harder, but to accomplish the correct decision is very easy. In limit hold'em, the decisions are very easy, but to accomplish them are extremely difficult. Limit uh, Hold'em is a battle of attrition. A lot of people don't understand that. I I tell people all the time, there's more bluffing in Limit Hold'em than there is in No Limit Hold'em. Way more bluffing. And bluffing being the the, the proper definition of a bluff is betting when uh, you'll have the worst hand when called. That that is the definition of a bluff. So if you're you're betting with with, uh, Jack High and you get Ace High to fold... Like you, that that's a successful bluff. But if you're betting ace high and the other guy has eight high and they felt like that's not a bluff, you actually were value betting because you actually had the best hand at that moment. In limit hold'em, you do it a lot more because the risk reward for bluffing is so much more because a lot of times your bet in no limit, a lot of times you're betting, you're making pot size bets. You're giving, you're giving your opponent two to one on like most calls, three to one. Limit hold'em, you can have some of these pots I mean, some of these wild games, uh, you may have a four-way pot that was three-bet pre-flop, you know, raised in, on, on the flop with two with one caller, and then on the turn, like, you're sitting there, and you're, you're making your bluff is, like, getting, like, 11-to-one odds on the pot. And if, like, if your opponent misses their flush or something, whatever, and they have a hard time calling on the end, you may not even have anything. I mean, like... You may be you may be bluffing on the turn just so you could set up something on the like. That's why li- people look at no limit and go, "Yeah, you're right." The, you know, you can. There's a lot. What bet size is another decision, but in limit hold'em, like if you play against people that think like, "Oh, limit hold'em, it only costs ten bucks to come in." Like you can never win 
$1,000 in a 5-10 limit game at once in a one pot. You could do that in a no, no limit game. Sure. You can't, you can't, you can't just go like, I'm going to play 4-7 and I'm going to play king nine out of position or anything like you you're just gonna get bled dry or seven but is due though <laughs> <laughs> but then uh, but the key in limit hold'em is just it is value betting it's just like thin like i was just very good at thin value like just knowing when you're ahead knowing how to knock another player out if you're sitting in the middle and you're like you're up against a pre-flop razor and you flop top top or something and it would be much better if I let the guy on the button that raised bet and then check raised the three opponents in between. So I, it improves my chances of winning the pot by not by making it two bets to as many people as possible. Those, those decisions in no limit, you could just, I could just bet $300, right? I mean, I could just, I'm just going to knock you out of your proper pot odds right now, like whenever I want. So like, to me, that's that no one plays limit hold'em anymore. So yeah. And also, heads up limit hold'em is stupid because it's been solved, so you can't even do that. <laughs> yeah, good luck trying to find a game. It's the same guys that are trying to find Omaha games. Like, Omaha is a fun game, but it's wild, too. I would and... stun. I played seven-card stun. I would go to Atlantic City. Really? Tuesday, it would be like Tuesday, 11 in the morning. I'm 25 years old, and uh, I'm playing seven-card stun against seven people that are uh, the youngest out of the seven is 72 years old. I was just going to say, <laughs> I guarantee the, the, you're the easily the youngest person at this table without question. Uh, I would I get love- Colts. I would get Colts. Some, they thought I was not because I would play proper stud strategy. They played old school. You're some like, young I, punk. Right. I just like, I'm just going to run you over. I'm just like on fourth street. I'm just running I'm, fourth and fifth street. I'm running people over and people called me on seventh with like, like a pair of eights. And it's like, dude, I'd like, I had like 14 outs to beat you. And I beat you. I mean, like, like they just, a lot of a lot of the old timers, the retirees in those like 2040 type stud games, like everyone played the same, like everyone, like, which yeah. like, you could almost just read, you know, what everyone's going to do. And then you're just looking, just, can I just eke out like small edges by just, I'll be aggressive. And then I'll get called on every value bet I could possibly get because really in the, the, the points that I was raising, Theoretically, you should be raising. You actually, if you if the, the percentages were on the screen like the World Series of Poker, my hand would actually be like a fifty six percent favorite here. Yet the other guy is acting like this. They have a made hand that that's better than my current made hand. That they're the oh, I beat, I bad beat them or something. It's like yeah, I don't Playing know. But I, don't the... I, I I was very good at uh, uh, looking at uh, old men's pictures of their kids or something. Or their dogs. <laughs> Because that's what you have to do. A lot of people in poker, I know Crane uh, tweets about it all the time. I agree with him 100%. When it comes to the, po- the poker people that are out now have no concept of politics. And the politics is, is the game the game of, of like entertaining. Schmoozing? I don't want to call it. It's not, you don't have to be schmoozy. You just, you have to understand that people are coming. If you're going to play live, especially, uh, people are coming for entertainment. So if you're gonna if you're gonna sit with your sunglasses and your headphones or whatever yeah. and just be the serious guy and never give action or anything, no what people don't want to play with you. Now it doesn't mean that you have to be uh, having a drink and partying it up, but like I, I play in live poker games and I I wasn't I never trash talk. I was very polite. I always said good, good even if they bad play a good nice hand, everything I made people I would make witty jokes, you know just like poker type jokes type of thing at the table. And the more that I folded, the more that I talked. 
Yeah, I was a tight player. I didn't play many hands. I mean, I know how to play well. But the problem is, is that when you're dealing with like people that are there for entertainment, they'll notice if you if you're sitting there silent with a hoodie and headphones and not talking to anybody. Even if you not have headphones, if you're sitting there silent, uh, folding like eight out of nine hands, like by the time that you actually pick up a hand that you, you do something, people know it stands out. But if you're talking about you know what the the what the the Eagles who the Eagles are signing and, and what can, did you believe that happened yesterday type of thing? They think that you're still in the game, but you didn't realize that you, you folded 20 out of 22 hands. I, uh, I don't know if there's any other place on earth like it. Like I, I grew up in South Florida, which is a melting pot as is. And just the poker table of all these walks of life coming together, you know, uh, you know, rich, poor, uh, old, young, white, black, uh, everything. Uh, do you know like, the trick on how to figure out who the richest person at the table is? I don't. What is the trick? The, the whoever, whoever looks the poorest is the richest. <laughs> Trust That's me. It, it, more often than not, at, at live games that I, I underground games, Atlantic City, the guy in in the in the sweatpants that looks like you know that mm-hmm. been, had been worn hasn't been washed in three weeks, and like the you know the. the uh, uh, 1984, like the 1984 Phillies World Series, something <laughs> like some old shirt, whatever, like that. And you find out that, like, oh, they're a retired, like, jeweler and they're like worth like $120 million. Uh-huh. And it's like, like, well, why are they dressing that? They're here playing poker. Like, why? And the guy they that's in they the don't st- care, <laughs> right? The guy that's in the suit and has the jewelry, whatever, that's the guy that it's not like he has no money, but yeah. he doesn't really have as much money as he looks like. Anybody wants you to think. Yeah, it's uh, I don't play it enough. I hope the I hope the well, obviously in these times, who knows? I was, I, I've, I'm sure you've seen the pictures of poker tables with the plexiglass and the masks and all that, and <laughs> like that's just I mean, like if you're gonna more power to you if you're gonna enjoy that, but that's that's not for me. It does not seem like I something I want to partake in. Uh, we'll see in the future how that's gonna change if it does change, but I can't imagine like putting a mask on and being between plexiglass and how do you drink and some people like to eat at the table as well too. It's well, that's disgusting. I, I hate. I- I rarely ever ate at the table. Yeah, a lot of yeah. a lot of people do. I, I'm not that guy. Yeah, if you're, I'll, chip, I'll if you're eating chips or popcorn or something, okay, fine. But some people are eating like, oh, I'm gonna have like a meatball sub and have pastrami sauce on their hands. It's like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> they got their own smorgasbord set up in a little side cart. Right. It's like we, we live in a society. What are, what are we doing here? Um, yeah. <laughs> There's so much I wanted to hit on Blender. I had a lot of questions and uh, I didn't realize we were going to talk about the things to talk about for so much, but I was interested and I hope that people are uh, listening were interested as well. What were you expecting I, to ask? Well, I have a whole list. Uh, let's, I you mean, went I through my whole life other than DFS. I, well, <laughs> I, I, I want to talk about DFS, but I, I, I didn't intentionally like avoid it. I'll tell you what, I'm not singling you out because I talked to Eddie the other day, Fast Eddie Fear, for like an hour and a half. Yeah, but Eddie talks forever. Okay, I, I talk a lot. Of- <laughs> we talked zero basketball. Is the point I was making. I don't think I don't think we talked basketball at yeah, all. Yeah, but no basketball is going on. Who cares? Well, I mean, not even like the concept or not even the like, they never came up. It was just that's just not something we were talking about. Just it's play just- whatever you want. That's all you need to do. What, talk about whatever right? you want. <laughs> play whatever you want, and there there's my DFS theory, and there you go. There, well, there you go. And well, soccer well, I, is a relevant DFS sport. People, should I not buy the book now? Is that it? Is that am I no. good? <laughs> Can people play DFS soccer? 
Why are people treating? Why is the DFS community? Oh, I can't believe sports are back with NBA and then MMA. And then like soccer's been back for three this weeks. Is America, and there's contests that are 50 to $100,000 prize pools and no one seems to care. I love soccer, actually. And I, I would go when I was living in Charleston. I would see, I was watching watch the Charleston Battery. My, my brother had season tickets and I would go to their games all the time. It was a blast. Blackboard um, Stadium. Yeah, well, the, that's not going to be a thing anymore. I'm not sure if you're aware. And the people, no, no, I know. My, my 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 team is in USL. I know. Yeah, yeah. So they're probably possibly going to move, but yeah, nobody cares about that. But uh, great time. I thoroughly enjoy soccer. But in America, you know, we don't. It's a it's a consensus. Again, we were talking about the Mount Rushmore comedians. The Mount Rushmore sports soccer is not on in America. Yes, it is. And soccer, soccer is the second most popular sport in the United States for like ten year olds for kids to play for record. No, not for DFS. No, not for DFS, but I'm not talking for watch, about not for uh, ratings. Yes, it is. It's the second most. Yes, it is. It's the second most watched sport in the United States. Were you pulling like World Cup data, or like I guess uh, or no. just, talking about just like uh, the, the Premier League? No, the Premier League is the sec is not even the most watched league in the United States. All right. Well, I guess I got well. What's the most watched league in the United States? Liga MX. Okay. Is it where? Where is that? Is that Spain? Where is that? At? Mexico. Mexico. Oh, I remember we were we were doing DFS on that a few months ago. That was right. the thing. <laughs> just, just, just understand that just, just because, uh, just, just because it's not in English doesn't mean that it's not an American people. I'm not, I'm not against it. I like it. I like. So I'm, I'm, I'm on your side. I'm just, I'm sort of like. No, but I just other. don't like. I just don't like the attitude of like soccer's not a popular sport in the United States. It's like it, like it gets higher ratings than. NBA games like it does. Yeah. NFL. It, it doesn't beat the NFL. Well, the finals of the NBA gets or I guess the no, the league, the league, the, the, the Liga MX finals. Okay. Are the, the only, the only things that beat it are, are the Super Bowl. That's interesting. Cause I would think, uh, is league MX is soccer just as good as, or better than premier league or Bundesliga? No, no, no. Mexican league. I, I, it's better than MLS, but it's just, it's just, it's, it's, there's a, there's a lot there's a lot of Mexican Americans. There's more Mexicans, yeah. I right, that that, that watched that, and also Latin America. I mean, like in Liga MX, it's not just Mexican players. It's a lot of Colombians, a lot of Venezuelans, a lot a lot of Brazilian, a lot of. I mean, uh, Gignac plays and he's French. I mean, it's not just Mexican players. So, like, if you're if you're a fan of a lot of the the if your your favorite players came from like a club team in Venezuela. Most likely, if he moves up in stature, he's going to play for a Mexican team, and then you're then you're watching that just like people are watching Chelsea now because Pulisic is on or Tyler Adams on Leipzig. Like it's the Josh Sargent is on Werder Bremen in the Bundesliga. Is Pulisic the savior, or is the US still going to be terrible going forward? Uh, until they get some type of tactical concept, it's always going to be terrible. <laughs> yeah. We have so many people and so many good athletes. I mean, th- th- that that's another part of it, too. It's like, oh, don't we, start me with that. Who cares about athletes? Our best matter. athletes are choosing different sports. No, no. Oh, no. You're making that argument. That's true. <laughs> you don't think LeBron could be a great soccer player? No. He would be a horrible well, soccer probably, I guess, yeah. I'm, I wouldn't say he'd be bad, but. here, here Here's, here's the, the, the common retort. For this type of argument, all right, we have time. It's arguable. I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring, I'm gonna bring up what is current. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty inarguable that the greatest soccer player of all time is Lionel Messi. Okay, okay. If not the one of the best of the past fifty years, I mean, like it's up there. If he's, he's like five eight, the, how tall is he? Five seven and uh, hundred and fifty five. I mean. Because he's a good soccer player, 
It's like saying our best athletes aren't choosing ping pong. It's like, well, ping, what the skills we, we view in the United States, someone as athletic based on their body type who can't like in basketball, if you're not tall, you're probably not going to be a good basketball player. You, Messi's never going to be a good basketball player because it's required. Soccer, it's not you're, at, what we consider to be athletes are not required. You do not have to. The cardio is more important in soccer than it is in baseball, right? There are baseball players. Okay. You, you, Mike Trout, if he chose soccer to play soccer, like, is he going to be a good soccer player? The, it's not going to matter what his arm strength is. Who cares about his you arm strength? you got to be a good right. athlete as like a basis, though, right? As right. a foundation. But, but still, a lot of the technique. The skill set. Okay. The, skills, the skill that, set That can be soccer, learned, though, can it? Some of it? A good portion of it? Well, of course you can. But, I mean, someone like LeBron, who's 6'9", is like he would end up being – he would be a great central, a central defender if he – because he's a tall – he would – but he wouldn't be famous or anything. The back Right, he'd just be a back line because his skill set, like he would get lapped by these Brazil, the, like the Brazilians and the and the, the Argentinians that are like what about a keeper. Six. He'd be an amazing keeper if he learned how to be a keeper. Well, the reason, the reason why jumping. Well, of course, but you have to go Beach. side to side. There's a lot of agility. The reason why, if you notice American soccer, the the number one position that we produced as far as like world class type level. Our goalkeepers, Tim Howard, Tony Miola. Well, not, maybe not Miola, no. Tony Miola, former Kansas City Chief. At least he tried for it like a year. But. I'm talking about goalkeepers that ended up on like Premier League side, on, on, on top sides in Europe. Because the way that we train sports in this country are very positionally. Look at football. Look at uh, baseball. You learn how to become a first baseman. You learn how to become an outfielder. You learn how to become a wide receiver or a linebacker or anything like that. the only position in soccer that really exists where you could just say, I'm going to learn the skill set for this position is goalkeeper. Everyone else, you, you need to learn a first touch. Even if you're a center back, you have to learn how to uh, attack the ball aerially. Even if you're going to be a five foot six attacking midfield, I mean, you're going to have to learn all the skills of soccer regardless of what position you're in and the coaching and training in this country for most, for nearly all of its time is geared to you, you. What ends up happening in youth leagues is that you're 10 years old and who, who's going to be the forward on the 10 year old team, whoever the best athlete, basically just going to say yeah. whoever reached pre- whoever reaches puberty, the first or center mid is important, right? Or center mid you're because, because only, but you don't learn the technique you're just you just happen to be bigger than some of the other kids so you're going to be in the attacking position but you never learn how to be you never learn the how to play with teammates and be you know well we're going to need you because when you're 16 years old now everyone catches up to you and now the skill set that you have for a central attacking midfielder is probably best served as a fullback now it's like you have all the cardio but now all these everyone caught up and you never really got the technique to play at that point of the field. So we have a lot of guys. I mean, we've seen in the U S soccer teams so many, so many times of who knows what position these people, Clint Dempsey, is he a winger? Can he play centrally? Donovan never really had it. He's a, he could play as a center foot. Like all of these guys could be great at their position, but they were always brought up as, Oh, you're the best player. So you're going to play in this, in whatever position we need in the front line, but you're never going to learn to be, 
like a winger. You're never going to learn to be play any position you want. What play any position you want. Play any position you want. Right, exactly. <laughs> I think we hit the over on that, by the way. It was the, the the Vegas line had it like a three and a half. We just hit it before we stepped away. Blender, I kept you for a long time. I kept the listeners for a long time. Hopefully you guys stuck with it. I appreciate it. Uh, tell us, like, you are doing soccer content, by the way. Tell us the soccer content you're doing. Tell us where to find you on the Twitter machine. All the plugs, get them out there. If you're a premium member, I'm doing, I'm doing video, a full breakdown video of every main slate for Bundesliga, and then we'll probably have Premier League coming back, whatever. As Until the major sports come back, I'm hoping if every, if you want to bug Dan Bach, maybe maybe I'll continue doing soccer stuff past when the major sports come back, but you're going to have to bug him because I don't know. I, 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 if you like something, always tell, people, tell the people in charge that you like something because then no one's going to know. It goes away. People are like, why did that happen? It's like, well, you didn't say anything. So uh, – I'm doing those soccer videos. Greg Swinehart, uh, Rubio Dimes, he has his normal soccer package, but he's in the, the, the soccer Discord, so he produces an article and has projections and stuff. Uh, so uh, if it, it, Saturdays, it's it's people are playing slates, Dean, at four in the morning for Korean baseball. Yeah, They're playing they <laughs> League of Legends slates at one in the morning. Bundesliga is 9.30 in the morning on Saturday. Saturday, Saturday morning, or like Tuesday, Wednesday afternoons at not 2.30. It's not, it's, it's not interfering with anything else. It's not in, you, you don't have to interrupt your MMA. You don't even have to, you barely have to interrupt golf. Like you could play this stuff and it's, and it's soccer. It's fairly straightforward enough. Watch the videos. And just because it's a lot of players that have umlauts over their names and O's with dots or whatever. It, it's it, most of the time, if you're playing on DraftKings, half of the player pool, you could just throw out. So you don't even have to worry. It's like the offensive lineman in the in NFL. You don't have to worry about those people. So feel free to, if you're a premium member for that. And if you're not a premium member, you should be signing up for premium. Or if you were a premium member, was it Paul? I don't know how they're working it out. If you can pause it, you can unpause it. Everything's coming back anyway. So what does it matter? Right? NBA is coming back next month. Golf is good. Everything's coming back. So so if you need help and you want to sweat, there's a lot of showdown slates. So it's it's not not complicated. So just join in soccer discord or, or, or tweet me at Blender HD on Twitter and, uh, and, and just understand I think a lot of people don't like playing soccer when they start playing is because the lineups don't come out until an hour before kick. Oh, you're going to tell me like that too. Or, well, uh, I kept you long enough. I much appreciate your time. I, I had a good time. I, I learned a lot about you. I was not aware of some of these things and that just kept on going. Did, are these good things? Did you, are, are these, we'll, we'll find out. We'll get some feedback. I suppose. Uh, <laughs> I didn't learn anything about you. Uh, that's nobody cares whatever <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll be here next time so maybe like a, i i let a, a one fact to show here i'll uh i waited on carlos valderrama you mentioned you columbia soccer yes. I waited on carlos valderrama i, I care. a coffee like 20 years ago yes there what you go was it, what, it was what was an international match in Nashville? he was playing for like the miami fusion i think at the time or something like that yeah okay this where were south you florida. i was in south florida oh you were in south florida okay yeah <laughs> so that's your soccer like, story. When you see nobody says, "Is that Carlos Valderrama?" You know it's Carlos Valderrama when you see Carlos Valderrama. Very distinct look, especially uh, at that time. I don't think he has that hair anymore. Yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't seen him in a while. But back then, uh, there you go. I put him a cup of coffee. Yeah. All right. That, that you learned something about me. <laughs> Very important fun fact. You are Blender. I am Dean. Thank you for listening to the Morning Grind. We're out of here. Holler. Mm-hmm.